Hey friends, Jason Miller here. You're listening to the South Bend City Church Podcast. If you'd like to watch this teaching, just look for South Bend City Church on YouTube or find our Instagram account at SB City Church. Whether you're local and tuning in this way because our gatherings are suspended because of COVID or you're a member of our long-distance digital family, we love you and we hope you're well-served by this teaching. If you'd like to financially support the work, please go to southbendcitychurch.com give. We are not always heroes. We said it before, we'll say it again. We're going to return to this throughout Lent and reflect on the ways that we often fail. But here's the thing. This reflection is not our destination. This reflection is a waypoint on our way to the experience of the table and to the remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection. And if you've been over at Studebaker 112 in this Lent season, as we open it up on Thursday nights and Sunday mornings for you to come in, I, I hope that you have sensed that there in that space, the heart is that we would reflect on these themes on our way to remembering the indiscriminate welcome, the love, the embrace that we receive at the table, the healing that's offered at the table, the sense that none of these things that we confess keep us from belonging at that table, uh, but perhaps confessing, owning, naming, realizing, doing an inventory on our lives is actually just a way of bringing our whole selves to the table not just the parts that we are proud of. It's a way of bringing even the parts that we might want to hide to the table so that our full selves there, we can experience a full welcome. Today, I want to look at a character in Scripture who begins as a hero but ends as a villain. And there's a kind of tragedy to this character's story because of how strong he starts and how badly he ends. And the character that I want to talk about is uh, King Saul, from back in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. Uh, let me give you a little bit of context for this story, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. So Israel is this, this family, this big people that, that come out of Egypt, and they're liberated from their slavery. And uh, coming out of their slavery and into the Promised Land, they, they begin to actually form as a people, and to have their own identity as a people, and their own practices and customs as a people, and their own way of knowing God as a people. And eventually they want their own king as a people. Now, there's a turn in the story because it seems that God had imagined that God would be their king and that they wouldn't be subject to the same kinds of power games and empire strategies that drive the world around them, but the people want a king. They're insecure because they look at their neighbors on the left or the right. They look around the ancient world, and it seems that the way to keep yourself safe and strong is to have a strong king who leads you and protects you. And so they ask God for a king, and God finally relents. And so now we're in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 9. And Samuel's the prophet who's been directed by God to help people find a king. And he's kind of going around hunting for who this person will be. Uh, there's this interesting statement at the beginning of 1 Samuel 9 where we read that this man Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he had a head taller than anyone else. That might seem kind of superficial, uh, but clearly this is a man who's impressive at first glance. Uh, we read that um, God is sending Saul or Samuel to uh, anoint Saul as the king. And then a little later in chapter 9, uh, God speaks to Samuel and said, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him, uh, ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So this is a big deal. I mean, this is kind of a dumb metaphor. 
Saul's like the George Washington of the Israelites. He's like their first leader as they're formed as a new people. And his job is to lead and protect the people. What a noble, powerful, heroic calling on his life. I mean, like things look really good. He's handsome and he's tall and he's strong and God calls him out and he's gonna be the hero who leads the people of Israel. But things begin to turn slowly. So for example, uh, Saul is sent with his soldiers to go conquer another kingdom. But there's an instruction that God gives that he doesn't all the way live up to. And because he doesn't live up to this instruction and it seems there's a bit of greed involved, uh, God's favor is no longer with Saul. And then a little bit later, the Israelites are up against the Philistines. And you might have heard this story. This is the story of David and Goliath. Now, what's interesting is David has already been secretly, privately anointed to be the king that will replace Saul because of Saul's disobedience. But that happened uh, quietly and out of the way and out of the mindset of the people. And so we have that whole story about David and Goliath. And if you don't know it, it goes a little bit like this. So David is one of many brothers. He's the runt of the litter. And his older, stronger, more impressive brothers are all part of the war effort for Israel. And Israel has come up against the Philistines. And as the Israelites and the Philistines stand off, this giant Philistine named Goliath comes out and he taunts the Israelites every day. And the idea is rather than send all of our forces against all of your forces, why don't you just send one champion against me, the champion for the Philistines, and we'll just have a, a man-to-man duel and whoever wins, his people will win and that'll be the end of this whole skirmish. And the problem is that all the Israelites are terrified and so they're just sort of quaking in their boots as this Philistine comes out and taunts them every day. And then David goes out, this scrappy kid who wasn't even supposed to be there. And you probably know the story, right? He uh, rejects the armor and the weapons of conventional wisdom and instead just picks up the sling that he had used for years while shepherding and he takes Goliath down. Well, this is a big public victory in front of all the people. And then we read in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres, And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry and this refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, he didn't just keep a close eye on David. He became murderous with David. He tried to assassinate David. So you go from being this big, brave hero and champion of Israel, the original victorious king for the Israelites, to being this villainous person who's working against God and the fact that God had anointed David. And as I've thought about like what seems to be happening and how could I find myself in the story of a person who starts out a hero and ends up a villain, Uh, There's a particular work, a particular teaching that has come to mind to me that I think illuminates what might be going on here and what we could take from it. Uh, Some of you will know uh, of a Franciscan and a priest named Richard Rohr. And Rohr wrote a book a little while ago called Falling Upward. And Rohr's basic premise is that there are two halves to life, two different modes that we are meant to live in in these lives. There is uh, what he calls the first half of life, which is a time for building our our identity project, our ego project. This is a time for taking all of your energy and all of your talent and all of your heart and using it to build a life for yourself or for the people who are a part of your life. 
This might be uh, when you come out of the gate from college and you tackle your career and you are climbing the ladder and you're finding out what it is to use the things that you've been given, your strength, your intellect, your experiences, your thoughtfulness, your talents. You're, you're putting all of that into building something for yourself or for the people uh, that you care for. Or maybe it's in your family, you know, so you... You put everything you've got into having a great family and making your marriage work great and making sure your kids are happy and whole and healthy and succeeding. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can approach this ego project that we build in the first half of life. But Roar's big point is that life isn't just the, the project that we build. That something will inevitably happen, maybe an experience or maybe just a sort of turning in life that invites us into what he calls the second half of life. And he says, uh, for example, that the first half of life is when we build the containers of identity or ego. But the second half of life is when you discover what they are for, like what's meant to fill them. You could say that the first half of life is something like the project of the ego and the second half of life is something like the project of the soul. You could say the first half of life is something like the project of the flesh and the second half of life is something like the project of the spirit. It's important to note, though, when we say first half, second half, he's not saying that right when you hit midlife on the actuarial table, like 40 or 50 or whatever that is, that that's when it flips. Rather, that life has a way of inviting us into the second half of life whenever it will. Now, this isn't super prescriptive because I actually don't know where you are at in your life right now. I don't know if you're in a season where God or life is inviting you to build the big project or if life or God is inviting you to fall upward, as Rohr says. Sometimes it feels like it's losing when you fall. Sometimes it feels like things are being taken away when you fall. Or like Saul, uh, we read right here in the text, uh, that he thought to himself, they've credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? There's a threat to his project and his place inside his project that it might be taken from him. And I feel a sense of compassion for Saul because I think this is the moment when he is being invited to fall upward, as Rohr says, and to go from the first half of life to the second half of life, to die to some of the ego project building and instead let that container that he's built be filled with the things that it was meant for. Like, like imagine with me, for example, if, if Rohr, had, or sorry, if Saul had decided that, um, that he had done what he was here to do in terms of building the kingdom with his ego and his strength and his power and his impressiveness, and what if he realized it was time to go from being the king to being the elder in Israel? What if, uh, as I saw somebody else said, what if rather than just aging, he could have become a sage? And what if in this moment he could have welcomed the possibility that his influence now existed to support and raise up this new leader who brought new vision uh, to the Israelites in their life together and with God. Uh, falling upward is painful, but what is even more painful is watching someone uh, who life is inviting into the second half of life as they resist it. And unfortunately, when we resist this movement, when we're invited into it, we run the risk of going from hero to villain, or at least of some of the good work that we've done souring in the world. I heard a story recently from a friend. A friend of mine worked in an environment where uh, there was a very prominent public leader that was the head of the thing he was a part of. And that big public prominent leader uh, was in his 60s. 
and somebody else came to this friend of mine and said to that friend of mine, man, look at that leader, look how relevant they still are. Look how, even in their 60s, look how, how impactful they are and how their life matters and how they haven't gotten any less relevant the older that they've gotten. And this friend of mine tells me the story and he tells me the, the sense of sadness that he feels while this other person is admiring the way that this leader has maintained relevance. Because what this friend of mine knows is that everybody inside the organization is desperate for this leader to stop trying to be so relevant because what they need from him in this season, what this whole organization needs from that leader in that season is for him to stop trying to be the most important person in the room and start being the person who gives the most away. Start being the person who uses everything he has built to make room for other people to grow up and take the mantle and flourish. But it's scary to let go of the ego project and transition into the greater, larger work of the soul that we are all here for, which is why a lot of us get stuck in this transition. You can feel the sense of threat for Saul, right? Like this is a threat to his power in the kingdom, but if only he understood that perhaps there was an invitation in this moment to fall upward, to, to let this new leader ascend, and to let go of the very ego that had helped him rise up, and to transition into something different for his life ahead. Uh, again, I can't tell you when this is gonna happen for you or in what arena of your life or how you will be called, but I think all of us will be invited, perhaps at many different points in life, to go from building the project of the ego to living the life of the soul and filling those big and strong and powerful containers that we have built with good and sacred and, and loving things. Now, um, the good news is we have an example of this. Uh, at the center of the story of Scripture, what, one way of reading the story of Jesus is that he himself navigated this movement from the first half of his life to the second. I mean, if you read the Gospels like we just did during Epiphany, you get this sense that when he sets out in his, his ministry in earth, on earth, that he, he is gaining a lot of momentum, a lot of influence, a lot of success. The crowds grow as you read through the Gospels. And then there's that day on Palm Sunday when he enters Jerusalem and people are shouting feelings of salvation and victory as if he's going to be the one that delivers them in all the political ways that they want. And this is sort of the, the peak of the project that, that he could have built if he wanted to stay stuck on the ego. But, but of course we see a different pattern in the life of Jesus and it's narrated poetically in the book of Philippians. And this is a text that we've turned to like even during this COVID era as a church family. But I, I keep discovering that this pattern in Christ that is narrated in Philippians 2 is uh, the kind of pattern that we have to learn how to wrap our own lives around. That by following Christ in this pattern, we're following Christ and what the scriptures mean by salvation. That we are actually participating in reality as it really is that this is the way that love works in the world in our lives. And so let me read you from Philippians 2, uh, where Paul says to a church, he says, in your relationships with one another, in the world that you are building and in the life that you share, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, live by the same pattern, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Now that's the fall that Rohr is talking about. That's the death that Rohr is talking about, whether it's the literal death of Christ or the death that we are invited into at the end of our ego project and the moment when life invites us to build something deeper and better and more soulful than the thing that our ego could build. And then having um, died on a cross, God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, of course, another way of talking about falling upward is talking about death and resurrection. And even if death and resurrection aren't motifs in the Old Testament quite the same way they are in the New, although they are there, I can't help but think that Saul was being invited into death and resurrection right there in his very own life. That he could have uh, set aside the attractions of the project that his ego had built and recognized that this kingdom was bigger than him and invited David to take David's place as the story unfolded. And you and I are being invited right now, I think, to make sure that whatever heroism we have carried in the world, it doesn't sour or become corrupted in the moments when we are unable to cooperate with life as life invites us into the second half. Now, we, uh, we have this sacrament that we are sharing together through Lent. And again, you can come join us over at Studebaker 112 on Thursday nights and Sunday mornings. Uh, we're not doing mass gatherings yet, but we are opening our doors and creating a place for reflection and confession and absolution and for the sacred meal of communion or the Eucharist. And uh, as I was there just yesterday uh, receiving the Eucharist in that space and thinking about the life of Saul and the life of Christ and this invitation to lay aside some of our ego projects whenever life invites us to do so and and allowing ourselves to be expanded in that act of dying, I was thinking about the taste of the Eucharist, of that bit of bread and that cup, and what it is for those things to hit my palate and pass through my body and sustain me. And I was thinking about how tragic it is that I think so much of what we feel called to build, we think we are building it, for the benefit of others, because what other significance would there be than building something for the benefit of others? And then it turns out the way that we really give our lives away to others is by dying when life calls us to die. Not that we stay dead, but that we would be resurrected by laying down the projects of the ego. Not that they're ultimately wasted, but that they actually become what they were here for all along, which is containers to be filled with life and goodness, not just for us, but for the world around us. And so if, if Saul would have only known that all that power and prominence that he had, all that he had built and all that he'd built around him was ultimately a way that he could give himself and his work away for the people that he served. Uh, like Jesus knew that all that momentum and all that power and all that influence was really nothing unless he learned how to die to it and to not grasp the status or the position of the container that was being built up in his life and around him. He gives his life away uh, only to be raised up in a resurrection and for us to be sustained in his death. And so maybe you'll come uh, over to Studebaker 112 in this season of Lent, or maybe you'll just have this reflection at home. But maybe you'll reflect on the more heroic aspects of your life, where you have shown up, where you have brought your best, brought your power, brought your talent, brought your influence, and built something beautiful. But maybe you will hear in some of those spaces a whisper or an invitation as life woos you forward into the second half. 
Maybe it's that things aren't going the way that you want and you feel like the things that you hold precious are being stripped away, but it's actually time to let it go. And when you do, you may not actually be diminished, you may be enlarged. Like Christ who was raised up and exalted. And maybe all the good that you have built and all the power that you've had will be given away to sustain others. And then maybe all that heroism that brought you this far won't be corrupted, but will be translated and transformed uh, into a gift for the world. We are not always heroes. And sometimes it's the most heroic things we've done, the most heroic identities that we have held. It's sometimes it's the most heroic things about us that threaten to be corrupted on the days when we can't let go and see that heroism transformed into something even bigger and better and more spacious for the good of the world. So may you uh, enjoy the life of, of the building and the projects. May you revel in what you can do. But when your power is sapped and when it seems the things that you have been building are being taken away, may you find the bravery and the humility to let go. Not that you are done, but that who you are and what you are here to give may be transformed into something better and more spacious to sustain all of us. May you have the same mindset as that which was in Christ Jesus, that he did not consider all of that status something to be grasped, but he gave it away and laid himself down, only to discover that we would be sustained by his death and that we would wrap our lives around the pattern of his life that we might be raised up to. Grace and peace.